Hello and welcome to the Nurse Speak podcast. Uh, we are your hosts, Lifa and Emily. And today we are coming with a somewhat sad episode since it's going to be on grief. We want to talk about grief because we know that it's something that we all experience in nursing and before the pandemic and extremely now with the pandemic. And then everyone who's listening to this podcast knows who EB was and they all feel that loss as well. Yeah. So, uh, Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's definitely been a crazy 18 months for healthcare workers and to at least add to the weird moment that we're in right now, the passing of my brother, which was the founder of this community. Hopefully this episode kind of shines a little bit of light and gives you different perspective on how everyone grieves differently and how they handle what is the inevitable part of life, death. And just so you're aware, they will be very heavy discussions, so be ready for future trigger warnings. Suicide. Yeah, suicide, grief. grief. And I mean, just working in an environment that you guys are already familiar with. Um, it might bring back some traumatic memories. Stay tuned to the end of this episode. It's been very important to keep a little bit of my brother and all that we've been doing from the podcast to everything else, merch store. So from now on, we are going to be putting a little bit of uh, EB's audio that he had while he spent all the time recording this podcast in the past. So at the end, you'll hear EB and... Not me. (laughs) And probably some dark humor and things that we goofed off about and laughed about in the previous seasons of recording nurse speak so i think it's good to keep his legacy going in this way so stay tuned and uh i think you guys will enjoy this episode our guests today are kevin and cindy so welcome to the show and can you guys please introduce yourselves my name is kevin i am a registered nurse my background is i started off in stroke telly back in 2013 did about four and a half years in a ccu in a large county level one trauma center and am currently for the past just over two years an icu travel nurse so pre-pandemic and pandemic if you want to find me i guess you could find me at chillin villain 70 on instagram just look out how to spell villain and spell <laughs> Welcome. That's awesome. And Cindy, introduce yourself. Okay. Uh, my name's Cindy Brosh, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in Oregon, licensed mental health counselor in the state of Washington. From 1989 to 2004, I worked as a nurse in the Portland-Vancouver area in both inpatient mental health and then uh, long-term in labor and delivery and then went to graduate school in 2002 to become a licensed mental health counselor. And I work primarily with complex trauma and grief and have a private practice here in Vancouver, Washington. And my website is cindybroschcounseling.com. Well, thanks for being here, guys. <laughs> you bet. It's great to be here. I had a chance to listen to, uh, I think, three or four of your podcasts with EB on them. And it was really, it was just wonderful to kind of get to know him that way. So sorry for the loss of him. It must have been really rough for you guys. Yeah, Cindy yeah, doesn't sure. know you're, you're being a therapist to like <laughs> thousands thousands of people. <laughs> you just don't know it. They yeah. just, they're going to be calling you. <laughs> you're like, do you have an Instagram yet? Because if you don't, you probably need to get one. Apparently I will. Yeah. yeah. 
So I know a lot of this is definitely going to be based on um, how people cope with the emotions that they have, the, what they've seen over the last 18 months, um, personal grief, you know, that's something that our society doesn't really allow us to, to kind of dive into and kind of show. Um, so please, Cindy, um, we'll be leaning on you to kind of guide us through this yeah. episode and uh, get your insights on that. Because for nurses and Kevin, you guys can both like agree or disagree with me. I feel like sometimes it's questionable as what's the boundary of how much grief to show in front of a patient. For sure. Are you crying with the family? Are you stoic? Do you show sympathy? Do you not? Can you give your number to the family? Like, you know, I would never give my number because I feel like that breaks policies or whatever. But some people do. And where's that boundary, especially if you have a patient that you've been with long term versus just like a short term patient? Um, So the first couple of stories really hit on that point. From a patient standpoint, this is something I personally didn't even think about, you know, um, being a caretaker to EB for the last year. Having Emily explain that little nuance and emotion from the nurse's side of uh, point of view is it's surprising to me because it is mm-hmm. something that I feel would be difficult to kind of ascertain when it's, you know, right or wrong or how much emotion to portray in front of a family that just lost your, your loved one. So mm-hmm. um, for me, this is all eye opening. Um, so I'm learning as I go. So the first story, um, is it OK to show your emotion? As a nurse who worked in the COVID floor, I have now moved on. The hardest part was acknowledging grief. At first, as a new nurse, I was made to believe by my very callous co-workers that you had to be tough and crying after a death made you weak. I don't believe in that mentality anymore. I'm not sure if I ever did, but I quickly realized I was not one of those nurses. When my patients died under my care, I always mourned them and I prayed for comfort for their family. I never pretended to be okay. I acknowledged my grief and never suppressed it. My close coworkers were the same. They didn't make me feel weak or inadequate as a nurse for crying or feeling defeated. In fact, they extended their arms towards me and were a source of comfort. It was easy to become frustrated in a toxic work environment and pretend not to have emotions. I thank God for placing my close coworkers in my life. If it wasn't for my faith, I could have easily become callous and heartless. Yeah, I mean, there's a similar question for therapists as well. I'm curious, too, with your listeners, whether they've noticed a change in themselves in the last year and a half with COVID. Because it's not that typical for us to be going through, on some level, the same thing that our patients are going through. And so... I think that adds even an additional dynamic in terms of allowing space for our emotion. I was always on the same page as this storyteller, you know, the the person who wrote in that some emotion um, helps people feel seen and known. I think maybe there's a tipping point with, you know, if you've lost control, then your patient's going to feel like they've got to take care of you. And so I think some emotion is really great to show. And then maybe if you find yourself really needing space because your own grief is bubbling up, then you excuse yourself and come back maybe. What do you yeah, think, Kevin? Uh, for sure. Um, I definitely understand where that... uh that story's coming from because there is that uh, balance, I think. It's hard to come by, like you were saying, like how much emotion do I show in the room? And then 
is it okay to cry with the family? Is it okay to not cry with the family? I'm not, you know, there's uh, culturally, there's such state to state, culture to culture. For sure. There's so much that you see, you know, uh, I remember in, you know, South Carolina, you just have people wailing. I mean, full out. And you're like, I'm even uncomfortable. I'm like, can I shut the door? Like, I mean, it, it sounds terrible, but, you know, you're like, there's like, you know, a patient on either side and then your mind's racing and you're like, I just saw someone die. You know, how do, where do I go with that? Yeah. And I think it comes, there's a lot of different aspects. I think jumping in with the family is almost what we're trained to do. You know, you want to be there because your patient's now gone, but that family's still there. That family's hurting and you're taking care of that family now. And then you're also having to take care of yourself and deal with the emotions involved there. Oh, yeah. and then, you know, that she all, or he or she also mentions the uh, callousness or burnout of the other staff and how they thought, you know, I don't want to be like that. And I, I want to be in there, you know, in the trenches of the grief. And uh, I get that a hundred percent. And then I also, though, I feel like could have been <laughs> on our side, like that callous nurse that, that is like, all right, like, you know, because there's still that job to do that day. It, it, yeah. The death doesn't come at seven 30 when yeah, you're about sure. to walk out the door. Right. It, for yeah. sure. Well, um, so. and it might also be important to talk about, um, compassion fatigue and just how, uh, especially in the last year and a half, it would be easy to find yourself in a place where you can't feel emotion um, just because of overload, mm-hmm. because you've been in so many of these stories. And I, I imagine that a lot of us have been in and out of that, just kind of managing that. Yeah. I mean, when you have five people die in the day, it's how much, how many tears yeah. do you have? Yeah. You yeah. Know? That's yeah. a good point. Over and over again, not just like one time. I'm going to read the second one because it's kind of similar, but a little bit more, um, a little bit different. I am an oncology infusion nurse. I love what I do. I get to see many people get better, but we also have weeks where we get notified of multiple patient deaths. It's hard. We see patients for months at a time during treatment, and some of them have been getting treated for years. Some patients are there for five days a week for eight weeks and others are there for two to three weeks. You really get to know them. You learn about who they are, the life that they lived pre-cancer, and the life they are struggling through now, and their dreams for the future. At the same time, it's weird because you aren't their friend or family. I feel like I have to grieve from a distance. Since I didn't know them before, or I wasn't part of their life outside of treatment, I feel like I'm not allowed to grieve. I keep it all inside at work, and then I go home and I just cry it all out. I don't have answers and I'm sure I don't process it well. I just want other nurses to know that they aren't alone in grieving the loss of a patient. I've had a couple family members die and, you know, I can't specifically remember breaking down and like weeping at like a funeral for my family member. And then you have someone here like this, uh, this writer is saying that they've been for weeks and years knowing these patients you know it's like you know my aunt i might have seen every 
you know, Christmas, Easter holiday type of thing. And in some respects, when you have these chronic patients, you're closer to them <laughs> than even some of your immediate blood family. Your interactions with it, them are so intimate yeah, already. Yeah. Yes. And you're seeing them at the end, mm-hmm. you know, I, it's hard. And it is, I think, uh, you know, it speaks loads to that confusion you experience, you know, it's just like, you got to reboot and figure out like, you know, do you go home? Do you express it there? Mm-hmm. Do you express with your coworker? You know, Cindy, I, mean, I think, think that's just such a great question. The question of, are we supposed to hold it ourselves? Our brains are made for co-regulation. That's the bottom line. Like our, our nervous systems are designed to co-regulate when it comes to painful experiences, not to handle them alone. And so if possible, I, in an ideal world, this nurse would be able to process with a coworker, would be able to you know, process some with the patient. One of the things that's interesting, and I've had a lot of hospice nurses as patients, um, and they're just such a great group of people. One of the things that's interesting is that when a person is facing death, whether they are actively dying or not, they're sitting with the reality of their death, maybe for the first time with cancer. We tend to, as human beings, to be open and um, start exploring things that we might not have been doing when we were just living our everyday lives. And so this nurse may actually know some of these people better than some of their family members do. Kind of like what you were saying, Kevin, with just how close you can get in these moments with people. And so, boy, I think if grief is bubbling up, it's legitimate. Whether it feels like you have a longstanding relationship with that person or not, you obviously have a connection with them or you're tapping, they're tapping into your story or you are into theirs. So, in an ideal world, that nurse would have space to process that at work and also at home, maybe to feel less isolated. Right. And that's, I, I think we do, you do experience that isolation. I, so, I mean, you know, it, it is self-induced. Like I, I think that first nurse was speaking to how they're, colleagues were all there with them you know and like they they weren't shamed by showing grief or anything like that but um there's it's not part of the nclex (laughs) (laughs) can you cry at work can you not (laughs) like you've seen a lot of the accounts uh, what kind of support systems uh like are in place uh for grieving and uh for nurses Within the workplace, mm. none. That's maybe crazy. maybe a debrief after like a certain right. situation, but that's rare. Yeah, I was telling Emily, I just I just came. The assignment I finished in Flagstaff. Um, they had you could for any sort of traumatic event, you could actually go and request a debrief, and um, it was awesome. They worked with their in-house behavioral therapy team. So that's all, um, you know, the psych side of it. So you had licensed therapists that were in-house and they scheduled the time, whoever wanted to come could come. And they went through, um, Cindy, I'm not sure what it was, but they, uh, they said they, the process that they used was started with the Oklahoma city bombing with the first responders there. And they used that process to talk through everything and it was amazing but 
this is in two years plus back home. That's the only time wow. I've ever seen it. I've, I've literally never seen anything like that before. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's on the job yeah. learning. <laughs> I always feel like a sociopath when I don't cry for patient's deaths. But on the other side of the coin, when I lose patients I know well, I feel like I'm crossing some boundary when I have emotions about it. I started sending condolences cards to families with my work address, and it really has helped. And mm. therapy, of course. Mm. So that first line was, uh, I think, what got me, because I feel like for you to be successful in this profession, you kind of have to subdue those emotions, and people might feel that... <laughs> they are sociopaths for doing this. <laughs> when, I mean, it's kind of like the the condition of your environment. Yeah, there's a certain element of, of having to do that because just the tasks of nursing, especially at the, you know, when someone's actively dying, you know, there isn't a lot of space for your emotions to be there. So there, there's an element of needing mm -hmm. to function really, really well and really quickly and be right on your game. And, and basically you're in the left side of your brain as you're, well, both sides of our brain are functioning at all times, but your focus is left hemisphere tasks in that moment. Mm -hmm. And the left hemisphere is very task driven, very sequential. So that's where you are. Grief is a, is, is a right hemisphere primarily experience. And so certainly not being a sociopath <laughs> really it's just about doing <laughs> doing what you've been trained to do um and we all know how to do that right because you know there there are many moments in life where we can't access or process what's going on at, at a given time yeah yeah i've often felt that nursing's in that weird place of being objective and subjective being emotional and clinical uh, there, there's like that level when you spend 12 hours or more or less with a patient uh, you have to find that balance um and, and you know that's something we learn as we go on and it, it, that's where it can get um i get i guess confusing yeah like when you're in these states and all you your brain does switch off because there's there's not that side anymore mm -hmm. that you need you don't mm -hmm. need clinical mm -hmm. side anymore but some of us don't switch off like i i think this nurse was talking about you know it's you're sitting there and all you're like all right what's next mm -hmm. what's next what's next all right you know okay we gotta call the coroner we need to call you know deal with the family we've got to get this bed opened we got you know i mean it's kind of yeah. fucked up, yeah. but <laughs> yeah. the job keeps going. So, um, to that, at least you know that nurse, you're not a psychopath, and it's a it's a hard balance. It's it asks a lot of your own brain, I guess, like Cindy, to function yeah. at that level. Mm -hmm. I think it's normal. This next story reminds me about myself. I did not write this one, but. And I haven't, I didn't work COVID, but this is kind of like the weird mentality that I think that I kind of have. I've been working with COVID-19 patients for 18 months. I've seen many people die since then, a lot of them whom I would have formed a connection with. However, even through all these deaths, I've never really experienced grief from any of them. Not to say I haven't experienced grief in my life, because I certainly have. 
But I found that whenever one of my patients die, I feel sadness for them, but that's it. It passes and usually doesn't follow me home. Or if it does, it's just a thought that crosses my mind before I fall asleep. But I've never truly felt any grief from these patients. I'm not sure if that makes me a bad nurse because maybe I just don't care all that much for my patient. But I definitely did care. But for me, when I leave the hospital, these people don't exist anymore. They feel like TV characters to me. It truly doesn't affect my life when they die because outside of the hospital, I don't know them. Anyway, I'm just wondering if any other nurses feel this way or if it's a sign that I'm a sociopath and I should see a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> I relate to some of this, not all of this. But like, the idea Low that like... Class. Yeah. I was expecting a lot of things to come up today, but the question of sociopathy was not uh, something that I considered. <laughs> Two in a row, too. It's that feeling, though, of like, I mean, I do care, I know, and I understand like the grief and i'm supportive of and empathetic and everything but then when i go home i'm not like thinking like i feel sadness i definitely agree with that but i'm not thinking or grieving for these patients Mm -hmm. which i don't know if that's because i am a seven and i'm just like oh let's move on or i don't know but that is how i feel like i understand that they exist and they're real but they Mm -hmm. like i'm not gonna sit and like outside of the hospital i sound so i don't want to sound like I don't care. I do care a lot. I do feel like that is the professional manner of being a nurse. If not, not a nurse, just me talking from the outside looking in. I feel it's easier to do your job when you kind of have that uh, mentality. Not to take it up to the, as far as thinking as people as just TV characters, but I feel like it's a new chapter every time you go in um, to work or wake up for a new day mm-hmm. or a new shift. Um, and carrying that it's... grief day to day might impact how you perform. Um, so mm-hmm. it, I don't know to what bounds, um, it may be on the healthy scale, but at least this person's identifying they might need to go see a therapist. So <laughs> that's good. Well, and also, <laughs> and also this is COVID. Yes. I, was, yeah. I have not worked COVID and I still kind of felt this way. This is repeated death over and over with yes. no, so like this is not an average pre pandemic case. And I think there needs to be a lot of acknowledgement for that. Your brain wants to protect mm-hmm. itself. Right. Yeah. Your your brain has to, yeah. um, I think, because my worst month, probably before COVID, I personally saw 10 people die. Uh, and out of those 10, it was, I don't know, probably six were actual codes, like not planned, not, you know, planned ex or something um so which in its own right is traumatic and i remember I, i'm similar to this person and i i feel <laughs> i i understand you know like I, i'm not one of the ones that shows a lot of um grief emotion at work it's fairly rare for me um so i get it but i feel like a lot of us who have been working COVID that do have that sort of uh, back burner compartmentalization of what you're seeing a lot. It's going to take us a couple years, I think, to process it because that month when I saw the 10 people die, I remember I I worked night shift. So I think we're going to talk about coping mechanisms at some point. But uh, anyways, (laughs) it's about 
Got home about after the tenth one. Got home about nine a.m. Like cracked a beer, and my roommate was waking up. He didn't have to work that day, and uh, he came out, and he's like, "Hey, man, um, been busy at work. You're back late. How are things going?" And I was like, "You know, man, it's been really hard. It just like completely, completely broke wow. down." So, um, I think. To this person, I, I, you know, they're not, you're not a psychopath. And I totally understand th- what they were talking about. And just, you can't, you know, I protect myself. I think I put up those boundaries as well. But uh, I think 18 months in COVID, Everyone has a limit. I, I don't think you're escaping yeah. anything. <laughs> That's a limit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I think it's going to be. I keep thinking about the long-term effects of of all this, you know, PTSD. All the nurses have been dealing with this for so long. I think it is a generally healthy skill to be able to to function, um, to be. And this this listener is describing caring for she 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 or he can feel that they care for their clients, and yet they're able to leave it behind. And I think. Yeah, that Emily, that might be a personality thing. There, there are lots of factors that could play in. Also, if you're working a shift and you know you've got however many patients a night, and you you're going back in, and you might or might not see those people again, you're talking about eight hours with someone. And I think there is a way in which you sort of it's a it's a stewardship piece of your own um, grief and trauma that how close you let yourself get while also being connected enough to care for them. One of the things I'm very concerned about, especially our healthcare workers right now and first responders because of the last year and a half and the toll that's going to take. And I don't think we're going to know for a while really what the toll has been. But anybody who's working in the ED has seen an uptick in mental health symptoms. People who have never been diagnosed with any kind of organic mental illness coming in in full psychosis. So societally, we're seeing a lot. I'm less concerned about that with our nurses, but very concerned about long-term PTSD. So if for this writer, if they go home and they can find joy in their life and they can spend time with friends and they can cry when it's appropriate, you know, in their everyday life, I think that's a really good sign that they're resilient and they're okay. If on the other hand, they're noticing that they're having flashbacks of things that they're seeing at work. These are the PTSD, distinguishing between PTSD and grief. If they're having um, flashbacks of the deaths that they've seen, if they're having nightmares about the deaths that they've seen, if in general, the world feels like a hopeless place, if they're avoiding thinking about work or going to work or anything that's associated with work, those are all PTSD clusters that might indicate, yeah, go in and talk to somebody. Trauma is actually one of the most treatable things that we work with in mental health. It's not easy, Mm -hmm. but it is fairly straightforward. And especially if a nurse knows that they have a trauma history in their background and some of those memories start coming up, that's time to just go see somebody and it will help. It will help. Just make sure you see somebody that's trained in trauma so they can help you immediately. That's it. Yeah, that's a great point. You want to read the next one? Uh, sure. So this section is on grief pre-pandemic uh, within healthcare because obviously it wasn't a pandemic that created. <laughs> it existed before. <laughs> right. I've been a traveling nurse for a little over two years now. I started pre-pandemic 
I was on assignment in Phoenix, won't name the hospital, and I was taking care of an elderly man in his 80s. I'm an ICU nurse, and I was working there on a crisis assignment. However, on that day, I was floated to your CV ICU because I was one of the few nurses who was a traveler and also had CV experience. Not my favorite because people aren't nice, but I know what I'm doing at least. My patient was being transferred to me from the floor in VTAC. Stable, but his ICD fired over 80 times in the last hour, and his heart rate wouldn't convert. I had a cardiologist on the phone, Boston Scientific, my charge nurse, and my nurse manager at bedside. Per cardiologist, I put the magnet on my patient to disarm the ICD until Boston Scientific was at bedside to turn it off. The poor man was in so much pain. From here, we're debating, trying to convert him with drips or to cardiovert. Because this man had eaten dinner, they refused concert sedation to cardiovert and said he was too unstable to use meds. I disagreed because he has been unstable for hours in VTEC. My patient was DNI. I didn't want to intubate a conscious stable man, nor did anesthesia. We argued for hours, and then my patient requested a private audience with just me. Said he trusted me and didn't trust the doctor, and said he had a bad feeling. The doctor refused to leave the room when the patient asked me if he should agree to be intubated. I didn't know what to do. I disagreed. He didn't need to be intubated. I told the doctor and the charge, and both went to bat for me at first, then back down. I knew deep down if we intubated this man, he would never recover. I didn't know if I was allowed to tell my patient my opinion. I looked at him and said, I'm not allowed to give you my opinion as a nurse, and is out of my scope, but this is what our trained cardiologist recommends. He reluctantly agreed, I'll spare you the details of his downfall, but by morning he had died, and I will forever live with the guilt and wondering if I should have spoken up and said something more or fought harder. I had to stand there while his wife and son sobbed. That patient had trusted me and I failed him. I think of him every day I work still. That's an intense story. There's a lot going on there to say the least, but I feel for that nurse for sure. When he's talking or he or she is talking about uh, the scope especially when the patient's asking you for an opinion and there's someone breathing down your neck, jumping at, I, you know, given the story here where it's someone's sitting there waiting to intubate this person and wanting to do all this and all this extra stuff after this man's been shocked at many times. If you, have ever talked to someone who has an AICD and has been shocked. Yeah. It's every time it's like yeah. kicked in the chest mm. by a horse. And when they start VT storming like that, it is the machine smart, but dumb, mm. you know, it, it's, it doesn't know you're conscious. It doesn't know that it's a lethal rhythm, um, you know, and that's what it's trained to recognize. So it's just a, keep fucking shocking your heart internally over and over again. Yeah, it's it's very extremely painful. My heart goes out to this nurse because I ate extremely, extremely difficult. And then the end game was the same where um, 
you know, I always tell my patients if we're moving towards death's door or something, you know, it's, I'm all for any dignified mm-hmm. exit from mm-hmm. this life. And I, I tell them, I'm like, there's a Scrubs episode where, uh, I don't know if we can say that. There's an episode <laughs> of a medical uh, comedy. Basically, there's a resident in there and, you know, the lady, they're, they're talking about death and dying in there. And she says, well, will I be comfortable? And he's like, so comfortable. And it's a picture of her falling back onto thing of cotton balls and i'm like i tell i'll tell my patients i'm like i'm gonna send you out on a cloud man i was like you will not know you're gonna have a blast and when you have seen that as as an icu traveler you know this person's seen the good and the bad the of how someone can leave mm-hmm. this world and i'm sure i deeply affected that nurse and sorry i did experience that for me being out of this field and not knowing how big of a difference that makes like when someone is at that point in your end of life mm-hmm. um i'm sure getting shocked over 80 times in your heart is it's not comfortable like the nurse is kind of backed into a corner here because it's like i know what i'm allowed Very to nice. say and i know what i've seen in my experience and this guy's asking for what I've seen and what my experience is, and I want to help them. And deep down, I know it's not to intubate him. And the doctor who says intubate him is standing behind me. So I legally can't say this is what I want to do. But then she's juggling with that later of like, mm-hmm. had I just told him, you know, had I had the opportunity to say that, which may have been breaking the policy, mm-hmm. but it may have saved his life. So it's, a, it's not no. really this person's fault. And they've, I feel like, internalized it as their fault. And so there's like this guilt in this grief when like it's not necessary to have that guilt, mm-hmm. but you're going to experience mm-hmm. it because of what happens. Yeah, what I really hear is that they that it was their own intuition that this wasn't the right thing for the patient that's right. now linked to the guilt. And that's come up in the podcast I've listened to just in these last two days with Evie uh, and you, Emily, talking about intuition as a nurse and how important it is to trust that and to trust the intuition of our patients. And so this nurse was in a terrible bind. The only other thing I would say is just understand when you find yourself in that if only and what if place, that's the bargaining stage of grief also, right? There are stages of grief that we cycle through, not linearly, but just we cycle through them. And the bargaining stage is about coming to terms with the loss. And so just understand that's one of the things your brain is doing to help you move through your own grief process. It ought to lessen in time, but it does feel important for this nurse to be able to um, offer some compassion and forgiveness to themselves that, that they really were in an impossible bind in that moment. I work in pediatrics. My career has been spent in some of the most tragic specialties, critical care, oncology, and bone marrow transplant. I've bore witness to horrendous suffering and held the hands in space for patients and families. I've answered the question, am I going to die, from tiny humans countless times. I'd be lying if I said that it's not easier with the little ones. They live so perfectly in their current context. I feel sad for their parents and the ones who love them, but they are perfectly children whose focus is only on what is immediate. It's the teens that get me. I've stepped out of many rooms where they live out their days cuddled in a plastic bed 
with their high school love, researching college and universities, sharing their goals of becoming scientists, musicians, researchers, and God forbid they tell me they want to be a nurse. I step out to cry, to take a breath, and to try to make some sense of their circumstances. Grief has been a context of my workplace for my whole career. Watching patients and families work through not only the loss of a life and their child, but the loss of a childhood, goals, dreams, hopes, and potential. I don't sugarcoat the work I do anymore. When people say, I could never do what you do, or that must be so sad, I don't respond with statements like, kids are so resilient, or there's a lot of hope too, anymore. Not because those responses aren't accurate or genuine, but because I am not sure how I do what I do. I don't know what has made me choose this over and over, but I continue to choose this. I acknowledge the grief, I shove it down, I cry it out, and I shock therapists with what I've seen when I finally decide to open up. It would be easy to justify my choice to do this work with all the joyful moments, the giggles, the crafts, the dance parties, and the snuggles. But those do not erase or make up for the constant grief of this work. They just coexist. I wish I could say that grief has taught me something profound about life's meaning. Maybe that would be more satisfying. But what I know is this. Grief is unavoidable. It's painful and it's required. I love that. That was an excellent mm-hmm. description. I think Charitia comes as a job mm-hmm. requirement. Yeah, I think what took us by surprise was just the fact that uh, I think this person felt it was a little bit easier just to deal with kids in this in this manner compared to um, adults. And yeah, it, it makes sense because your world is kind of contained in a smaller space compared to people that have lived full lives like she said like it's not just the loss of a life but it's of the childhood and the dream yeah. so that's like the teenagers who are discovering themselves mm-hmm. and discovering their future and like that's where it feels so unfair but at the same time there isn't something profound about it there isn't something it's just how it is just yeah. is that's and life. it's painful and it's here and it's required and it's connected and i'm trying to remember the term it's like yeah <laughs> reckless acceptance it's not that but yeah it's like just stepping it without abandon like you just fucking yeah all yeah it feels like, like it. yeah it really feels like it i really like yeah. a lot of the language there i really do it feels like this person has put their time in and spent some time in grief themselves you know Right. Radical acceptance. Yeah, yeah, there you Sorry. go <laughs> yeah, that's a good point if you can't escape it might as well just yeah. jump full in Next story. I don't have a specific story, but I work in an in-center dialysis, so I basically watch people die slowly. Most of the time, it's thank God when someone dies. Not in a mean way, but because they were so fucking miserable and holding on for their sometimes shitty families. I'm okay with those, but it's like the 32-year-old who dies from the flu that gets to you. I let this guy borrow my stat book and calculator for class. His life was coming together and he dies over something stupid. It makes me angry when compliant patients die and you have asshole non-compliant meth heads who refuse to die. I cry in my car and in the shower and get sad when something reminds me of the ones I loved. But now everyone I loved is dead so I make it a point to not connect to anyone because I'm tired of caring when people die. I take rip shots and I move on and I remain angry at the unfairness of life. I fucking hate this job. Reef sucks. Mm. 
sounds like meme nurse official. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you want to know what compassion fatigue looks and sounds like, you know, they've just been through too much and they're, they're in need of some support for sure. You know? Yeah. Or a career, I mean, not career, well, yeah. but it's, you got to take care yeah. of yourself first. I think that is one thing they do teach us in nursing mm-hmm. school. I think it's, it's oddly universal. Like everyone I've met, it's, that's that mantra that you get. The level of anger and grief you feel through that. I mean, it's, it's visceral for this mm-hmm. person. And if that becomes daily if that's when you wake up and get in the shower you go home and get in the shower Um, that's you know kind of i feel like from a a mental health aspect as someone who's done counseling for years Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) yeah that's the danger zone i'd say and you know, Cindy, I think you brought up earlier about um, we're here to live, not to work. So if your general feeling, I feel like, in life is anger and disappointment, there's the opportunity to talk to someone. More than likely, if that's the situation, I would speak to this person and say, you know, it's probably not you. Either there's chemicals fucked up in your brain or there's something you can change to make your life better. It's just rough. Yeah. I mean, I, I hit a chord. Yeah, it, right? does. <laughs> it does. I appreciate their, you know, the vulnerability in the, in the letter. Cause it, it feels like they're really putting it out there, but I would agree with you, Kevin, something needs to change. This person is, yeah. is um, they hate their job and they're losing a sense of, of any kind of meaning, not just in their job, but in life. Like why are, why does the meth head live and this, you know, perfectly wonderful 32 year old die of something stupid? And those are really good questions. Those are like existential mm-hmm. questions. I ask yeah. it all the time. I mean, we all do. Why the alcoholic right. get to live? To speak to this person, that's not a crazy no, thought. No, not but... at all. No, that's the, that's the yeah, same thought. Not at that's all. the conscious thought. Like, I don't understand, you know? Um, and, Maybe they're not, but the person sounds isolated. They sound kind of like they feel alone in it. And so that would be my concern is, you know, where's your support? Um, doesn't have to be therapy, but boy, you got, you can't stay in that place for long. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I had a patient on my floor that I took care of for several days. He was on our floor for an extended time. He was beloved and a friend of one of our nurses. It was known that he had a poor prognosis. He knew this, and his family knew this. He was essentially a ticking time bomb. He was DNR, DNI. When I took care of him, he had a few good days. The last night of caring for him, right before the change of shift, and 15 minutes after his wife had left the unit, he had the most traumatic death I've ever experienced. He had hemoptosis so bad that it couldn't be suctioned fast enough. There was literally nothing we could do but sit with him and try to suction him as he bled to death, choking on his own blood. It seemed like it lasted a lifetime. Everyone felt helpless. I can't get the image out of my head, and the worst part is that myself and the other nurses that were present during his death have never been asked about how we were coping with the event. I think that everyone thinks that because it's part of our job that it's easy for us to just move on. We act like everything's okay. 
We show up for work the next day, we take care of a new patient in the same room, and pretend like nothing ever happened. But holy shit, it's traumatic. And honestly, I don't think I've ever really addressed the trauma from it. So the definition of trauma in the DSM is exposure to a life-threatening event. I mean, obviously, nurses are exposed constantly to trauma. I think what this listener is describing is so horrific that, of course, they were traumatized by it. Of course, they're having flashbacks about it. And the good news is that they don't have to stay with that. They're right that a debriefing would have been really appropriate in that situation. Anytime there's something that traumatic. And I wonder what it would be like for nurses to start advocating for debriefings. I don't even know how that would work. I've been out of nursing long enough that I don't, I'm sure there are places where that would be heard and places where it wouldn't. But what you were talking about before, Kevin, CISD or CISM, um, critical incident stress debriefing, anytime there's something traumatic, it's certainly a traumatic death. Here in Vancouver, for a long time, it was just required for first responders, for anybody that was involved in that event, that there was a mandatory debriefing, allowed mental health professionals to be there, not just lead the debriefing, but talk about PTSD symptomology so that if it developed, they could get help for people. I I wonder about advocating for that in these kinds of situations, because this person, through no fault of their own, their brain is having an appropriate response to a highly traumatic event. Absolutely. And in all the situations that I have um, witnessed and seen death, some of them have been traumatic, some of them have not. And I, I can relate to this person. The first time I ever saw someone post, um, they'd had a cabbage, a heart bypass, and they arrested and Doc came in and split their chest right down the middle again and cranked them open, massaging the heart, the whole, the whole nine, like it was, it was bonkers. And I still see that today. Um, but then like, I got to go to one of these debriefings because, uh, unfortunately, but I guess silver lining, um, at this last facility, there was a, a, it was a planned, ended up being a planned intubation that, we're still, they had a weird anatomical um, thing going on and the tube completely, a piece of tissue had kind of bulged out and gone in it and we were never, never able to oxygenate her and she died and talk about, I mean, traumatic is, this was just an elect, more or less an elective intubation. This wasn't emergent. And, you know, we talked it through. We got, she signed the consent to be intubated, you know? And it's, it was a fucking nightmare. The doctor was the one that requested the debrief. And, um, cause she was rock solid. She was an amazing and and she was literally shook to the core by the end of it and by the end of the debrief you get a very deep familial sense from your coworkers that is not just passing that you see in the unit yeah. it needs to be everywhere it needs to be yeah, the option. For sure. in an ideal world it would be seen in the culture of the hospital as a sign of strength to ask for it and to go to it you know, um, so yeah. there, there is a cultural piece here. Um, it's really true in law enforcement also. So important that the culture is, it's a sign of strength to ask for help. It's a yeah. sign of strength to seek, you know, whatever it is, trauma therapy, a debriefing, talking with your colleagues about it. That's what will change things. 
because we got to be thinking about the long-term mental health of our healthcare folks. You guys are putting your, especially in this last year and a half, but long before that, risking so much and giving so much. So it's, it's the least that we can do, um, I think, to offer that. Once again, thank you all for listening and also those that sent in the stories. Thank you to everyone who wrote their stories in. Yes. We cannot do this without you writing your stories you in. You made this episode. And um, we appreciate you guys being open and vulnerable um, with us and with the whole nursing community. This is part one of two. So tune back in next week or Or whenever two, we publish it. Or yeah, whenever <laughs> that is because we'll be around. Um, also, things that are coming up, as Evie would say, housekeeping, which I don't want to say housekeeping because housekeeping isn't fun. And these things are actually fun. We have the classic merch is back out. So if you're missing one of the new four off or Carpe Per Diem, Oscar merch, all of that is back in the Nurse Speak store at nursepeak.com. And we are also going to do a new thing that we are trying out with a few beta testers already. Um, we're really excited about it. We want to create um, this community because you guys are already a community we want to create new ways for you guys to connect together and so one of the ways that we are doing that is through small virtual groups um, that are like video chatting with um, people who are have shared the same experience as you slightly different different states whatever um, but we can want, we really want you guys to be able to connect and um, further grow the community in a new way yeah, a way that you guys get to drive the conversation and it's not moderated by people on instagram us us yeah (laughs) and also forum yeah forum that is something we've been working on for a very very long time my brother actually attempted to launch this over a year ago yeah we really tried it takes a lot of work to run one of these properly and we wanted to make sure we put in the right amount of work so it ran how eb envisioned it yeah so this is something we're super excited for hopefully we'll be able to get this out within the next month or so Um, But this essentially will be a place where you all can go and create a virtual community outside of these huge platforms. Outside of Instagram. Yeah. Shut down on us the other day. Good, what, 10 hours? The thing is, this community is so invaluable and we don't want it to go away just because Instagram disappears. So being able to have those conversations with people who are still part of the community on this platform and also remain anonymous, that's something we really want to like drive home is the conversations that happen are able to happen because people have the freedom of being anon- anonymous? anonymous. And nominated, nominated, what's the word? Anonymous. <laughs> Anyways. Thanks again, and we hope to see you in uh, part two of this, which would be episode three of season three, as I was just informed. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Better and stronger flows be like, all right, guys, thanks. All right, guys, thanks. <laughs> sorry, <Wait>. sorry. <laughs> I, was, like, I thought I was gonna say something else with it. Like, yeah, all right, guys, thanks. I was so sad still. All right, guys, thanks. No, he's, he's not, he's funny. Just Am I just yelling words. more? He's not asking to yell. All right, guys, thanks. Thank you so much. This is so great. (laughs) I'm in a (laughs) glow. Okay, 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 okay. Oh, man, I'm sweating through my hoodie. It's finally yours. Last chance, last chance. All right, guys, thank you, and we'll see you next time. Bye.